0: Good morning. Welcome to worship those here and those with us online. I invite you to listen to these words from Psalm 91 as we set our hearts on worship this morning. You who live in the shelter of the Most High, who abide in the shadow of the Almighty, will say to the Lord, My refuge and my fortress my God, in whom I trust. For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. Those who love me I will deliver. I will protect those who know my name. When they call to me, I will answer them. I will be with them in trouble. I will rescue them and honor them. With long life, I will satisfy them and show them my salvation. Sisters and brothers, please stand as we join our voices in worship.
1: our prayer of confession today is also a prayer of hope, hope that God would help us to live the very kind of lives that we were made to live and that we would do so in gratitude. It's a prayer uh, mostly written by St. Saint Francis, Saint Francis of Assisi, who died approximately 800 years ago this week. Let's join in prayer together. Oh, Lord, our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In this world of trouble, we acknowledge that sometimes we are a part of the problem. Instead of multiplying problems, we pray that you, Lord, would make us instruments of your peace. Where there is hatred, let us so love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light, and where there is sadness, joy. We confess, O God, that we have often missed that mark. Sometimes we have failed to do what we could have done. Other times we have done the opposite and worsened the situation. Remind us, O God, of your great invitation to live differently. Not seeking to avoid sin in order to avoid punishment, but rather in gratitude, trusting you to have shown us the way into the best life. So grant, O God, that we might seek not so much to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive. It is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. And all God's people said, amen. Friends, in a world that clearly lacks peace on the grandest of scales and the most personal and local of scales, we share in the good news of the gospel. Even if we don't feel it, even if we don't see it, the good news is that Christ has come, that Christ has lived, Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ now reigns. And because of this Christ, we have peace with God, and we have peace with one another. So the peace of Christ be with you. I invite you to continue in worship as we take in a song reflectively and prayerfully. Thank you, band, and good morning, church and friends and guests. The Lord be with you. My name is Ross Dielman, one of the pastors here at Fellowship Church, and together it is our mission to love God and others as an accepting community centered in Christ and focused on developing faithful followers of Jesus. We'd love to get to know you if you are new around here and have not yet made yourself known. We have connection cards available that you could fill out as you feel comfortable. Turn them in at the welcome desk in the back or give them to one of us pastors or someone else as well. We'd love to welcome you in. We have a new members class underway already. It's not too late if you want to try to sneak in. Talk to me or one of the other pastors too. We'd love to have you join us if that's so what you're seeking. And also if you've been around here for a while or even if you're new, we have outside in the atrium out there some tables set up which display our parishes and introduce you to the elder of your particular parish. You may have seen that last week, of course, but uh, if you missed it, you can grab a card and you'll see on there the elder for your region. You can put a pin on where your house is in the neighborhood and those, house, those maps go off to the ends of the earth. And so uh, if you didn't fit on the actual print, uh, it still goes out further and further. Uh, So we'd love for you to do that. That's out in the atrium. Next week, you may notice in your bulletin, there is an upcoming Taze service. Uh, Details are described in the bulletin, but it is at 6.30 next week, Sunday, and you are welcome to join in for that service of reflection and worship. Uh, Friends uh, and family are, of course, invited to join us with that as well. In front of me, you may notice there's a beautiful bouquet of flowers, and those are from the family of Bill Knowles, a longtime member here at Fellowship Church whose funeral was just this past Friday. And uh, among the things Pastor Nate shared uh, in in the service, that uh, Bill Knowles was a longtime faithful member here at Fellowship, and as he uh, aged and became what we call a senior saint who couldn't get here for Sunday morning worship as easily anymore, he was yet still faithful to come on Fridays and drop off his offering, a check, to support the ministry of the church because he was clear about where his allegiance was to God and alongside this faith community in our ministry and our mission. And you, of course, are invited to take part in a legacy like his by giving as well. You can do so in the baskets in the back of the sanctuary or online And it is our joy to do so together. At this time, kids, you are uh, welcome to sneak out. Ages uh, three-year-olds through fifth graders can scoot out to your various places. And we're going to continue in worship. I invite you to stand and we'll sing together, come light our hearts.
2: Would you pray with me? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, our souls wait for you, for guidance from your word, as we gather together as a community of people to sing your praises, to pray to you, to confess our sins to you, but also, Lord, to turn to your scriptures to hear what they might say to us. Not only about who we are, but Lord, most importantly, who you are and who we are in you. Lord, bless our hearts and our minds. Help us to open them both to what it is that you would have to say to us this morning. In the name of Jesus Christ, we all pray. Amen. Good morning, fellowship. My name is Tira. If I've not yet met you, I am one of the pastors here at Fellowship, and um, we are um, in week five of a... Um, a series that we've been calling between the lines where we're looking at uh, different passages of scripture um, and specifically looking into different passages of scripture to read between the lines uh, what it is that God is doing uh, who it is who is God what is God doing and what we have to do with that and so uh, this morning we are actually going to be in Exodus, mostly Exodus chapter 19, a little bit of Exodus 20 as well and we have a lot of ground to cover and so uh, hear the word of the Lord from Exodus chapter 19 picking up in verse 1. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. And they set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. And there Israel encamped before the mountain. And while Moses went up to God, while Moses went up to God, And the Lord called to him out of the mountain saying, thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, tell the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my commandment, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you, Moses, shall speak to the people of Israel. And so Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. And all the people answered together and said, "All that the Lord has spoken, we will do." And Moses reported the words of the Lord, the words of the people to the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, there's a familiar word that is used in our text, uh, and it actually gets used quite a few times throughout the scriptures, something like 282 times throughout the Old Testament scriptures or the Hebrew scriptures, this word is used, and it's this word, covenant. Uh, in the Hebrew, it is berit. Repeat after me berit bear reet. Traditionally in ancient Near Eastern literature, it means contract or agreement. Uh, It's one of those foundational words, though, in our scriptures, kind of like blessing. It comes up quite often, and even when it's not explicitly stated, it's intended. Covenants are rather popular in the ancient Near East during this time. In fact, the covenants that we find in the scriptures bear striking similarities to the ancient Near Eastern covenants. For instance, we find covenants in ancient Hittite, Syrian, and Babylonian cultures. Uh, they were typically called uh, suzerain vassal treaties. Uh, here's an image of one from 1300 BC, uh, the Aleppo Treaty. Uh, can you see that slide? Uh, there it is. Uh, it's, it essentially establishes Hittite domination or rule over Aleppo. Uh, These kinds of treaties uh, were essentially agreements between a suzerain or a very powerful king, most likely a very powerful wealthy king, uh, um, over a vassal king or a smaller nation. These agreements usually came about because the vassal king of the smaller nation needed the protection um, that the suzerain king's nation and more importantly that the suzerain king's army could provide. And, more importantly, his army could provide against bandits and thieves and other nations that were working to dominate the ancient Near East. Now, I've not worked this into a sermon yet. Uh, It's a really windy tale of how the ancient Near East makes itself, Uh, but it suffices to say that this was not a group of nations and empires just kind of peaceably living amongst one another and tending their farms and tending their sheep and getting along and sharing resources. This was kind of like the wild, wild west. This was like a Clint Eastwood movie on steroids, right? Uh, This was the ancient, Near East. Like, you're protecting yourselves from bandits and thieves on the one hand, to take advantage of smaller communities and smaller nations that don't have a sufficient means of defending themselves, like city gates, like armies, or like people patrolling outside of the city gates. And then on the other hand, you have empires fighting for dominance of the ancient Near East. Why? Why fight for dominance of the ancient Near East? Tax revenue, Resources from the lands that you've conquered and claimed, and ultimately, when you go to the party, you tell a good story, you brag. Bragging rights. That's what people are after. So if you're the king of some small community or a set of small communities or even a small nation, you might seek the protection of a suzerain king to protect you from the other empires and also from the bandits. But no one willingly subjects themselves to overlords to whom they would have to pay taxes. Essentially, the choice was between a sovereign sit- being a sovereign sitting duck on the one hand, or the vassal to a powerful suzerain, t- a suzerain king. These were the two options, and neither was a great option if you were a small nation. So you had to choose the lesser of two evils. In our own time, we call that election season. <laughs> but in their time... <laughs> In their time, they called these treaties or agreements or covenants. Now, traditionally, these treaties had five elements, five elements. Uh, The first was a preamble, and that preamble kind of identifies the parties of the covenant, usually the suzerain king and the vassal king, the two kings. Uh, Then there is the prologue. This is like a history. This is a history of the things that the powerful king has already done to establish why they get to be the person who makes this covenant. Um, And then there are the stipulations or the laws of the covenant, Uh, the terms of the agreement, if you will. These were things like usually don't conspire with other kings. Uh, Send some guys to the military when we launch a military campaign against some other nation. Pay taxes or tribute to me, the suzerain king. Provide for the troops that we station outside of your city gates. Give us all the gossip, all the gossip on all the conspiracies that you hear about that would threaten my rule. And ultimately, if there are enemies of ours in your land, be sure to send them directly to me or extradite them. This was the gist of the stipulations. But most vassal kings just scrolled to the bottom and clicked, I have read and agreed to the terms of this agreement. <laughs> Actually, do they even ask if you've read them anymore? Do they just say, like, I agree? Like, I just, I agree. <laughs> uh, and then there were sanctions. There were sanctions involved as well. Uh, these, were the, this was, these were the penalties that you would incur if you did not abide by the stipulations in the agreement. And then lastly, there would be a public deposit of the treaty, usually within the temples of the two nations involved. Now, why am I telling you all of this? Is this because I just geeked out on ancient Near Eastern covenants and I just want to tell you all about it? Yes, but no. I'm telling you this because these very features— Are peppered throughout the Old Testament scriptures. Uh, Throughout the Hebrew scriptures, we see these five elements all over the covenants that we come across, uh, but with some exceptions. And it's the exceptions to the rule, it's the exceptions to the elements that actually tell us something really incredible about who God is and what God is doing in the world. Have you ever heard the phrase, uh, God is in the details? You've heard that before? Yeah, God is in the details. His fingerprints are all over the details of covenants and the commandments that we find in the scriptures. So for instance, we find something like a preamble in our text for today. In uh, verses one through three, uh, then Israel encamped before the mountain. Uh, Actually, sorry, uh, moving down to verse four. Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, tell the people of Israel who's speaking. God is speaking. God is identifying himself on the front end. You find it a little bit more clearly in Exodus chapter 20. uh, And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. Who's speaking? God is speaking. He's identifying himself as the suzerain king. Uh, But there's something remarkable buried in the text that's easy to miss. Remember when I said that traditionally ancient Near Eastern treaties were between a suzerain king, um, a powerful king, and a vassal king. Uh, these were the parties of the treaty or the parties of the covenant. Who are the parties of the Mosaic covenant? God and who is it? And the Israelites, exactly. So it's not between two kings. God actually addresses his covenant to all of the people. All of the people. That is revolutionary in the ancient Near East. Um, Absolutely astounding. Now, we read this from the vantage point of, of Americans in 2022 with a constitution that tells us that all people are created equal. Before God, all people are equal. And the idea of all people having inherent worth and dignity, these are, these are ideas that didn't just come out of, out of, out of our own minds. I mean, in fact, a lot of people have spilt a lot of ink, writing a lot of books to tell us that these are not ideas that come out of our own brains. They come to us out of the scriptures. They come to us from Revelation. Uh, typically in ancient Near Eastern, um, actually, sorry, Joshua Berman um, is one of the people that I was reading in preparation for this. He is an Orthodox. Jewish rabbi, and he writes a book called Created Equal, and he basically argues in this book that um, the Jewish religious tradition broke the political tradition in the ancient Near East. And here's why he says that. He says, typically in ancient Near Eastern empires, it was the king who established dominance. It was the king who demanded loyalty. It was the king who destroyed opposition, both internally and externally. And it was the king who determined how power would be transferred. Um, And the people, the people were there to serve the king to fight your wars, to build your nation's wealth, um, and to legitimate such an order, such an arrangement, such a hierarchy, the king would say, I am made in the image of the gods. I'm the preferred ruler, the king would say. I'm the one they picked to rule, the king would say. I'm the agent of the gods in the world, the king would say. And who are the gods? Well, according to ancient Near Eastern myth, the gods were these Actual, like, physical beings who needed food and water and clothing. and and, But they didn't want to work for it. They wanted a carefree existence. And so they used the lesser gods to meet their needs for them to do their bidding. But then the lesser gods revolt. And to squash the revolt, they kill one of the gods. Not kidding. This is ancient Eastern creation myth. They kill one of the gods, and they mix the blood of the god they kill with matter from the earth to create humans. Now, humans can do your bidding. Humans can be your serfs. Uh, Humans can do the bidding of the gods in creation. These are the gods. And the king would say, I am made in the image of those gods. And just like all humans serve those gods, um, you are to also then serve me, made in the image of the gods, the king would say. And yet, in the beginning, our scriptures tell us all people Are made in the image of God. In Genesis 1, we read that God made humanity in our image after our likeness. And what is humanity to do? Rule creation. Not one another, but creation. Humanity, male and female, made in the image of God. There's a royal critique happening in our scriptures, and it's astounding because culturally and even religiously, no one would come to these ideas on their own. It had to be revelation from our triune God. There's something remarkable happening in God's covenant-making with Israel that recapitulates this beginning. God makes a covenant not with a king, but with an entire people of Israel. It's not a covenant with a king. It's a covenant with y'all. All the yous in our text are plural, which is why it's so tragic when God's people eventually demand a king, because God is their king. And the human leader was supposed to be a prophet like Moses or like Samuel who helped them hear and obey the voice of God so that they could rule creation the way that God intended, not a king like the other nations. They forfeit their status, their royal status as a royal nation and become an ordinary nation like all the others. And it is tragic and also the subject of a whole different sermon. So next point, (laughs) section uh, next point here is prologue. God rescues God's people. Um, and he describes his rescuing acts in the prologue. We read this in verse four. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. I rescued you from the Egyptians, God says. I gave you water from rocks, God says. I gave you bread from heaven in the wilderness, God says. I gave you the world's first GPS system, a cloud by day and fire by night so that you wouldn't get lost in the wilderness. I was like on-star for you in the wilderness, I bore you up on eagles' wings, God said to them. And where does God bring them? Where does God bring them? To himself. This whole rescue plan that God has planned, this whole bringing people out of Egypt, all the plagues, all the bringing them through the wilderness, sustaining them in the wilderness, all of it so that God can bring them back to himself. It seems that humanity is made in the image of God So that we can be in relationship with the God who desires communion with us. Thomas Aquinas, who's one of my favorite thinkers these days, um, he says, The image of God is fundamentally our capacity to know and love our God. To know and love our God. And with a haircut like that, you've got to take that as gospel, right? Uh, <laughs> and so that like, he can hear God more clearly because there's no hair at the top of his head. <laughs> uh, we were made for rich communion with God. And it was out of this rich communion that we would rule creation the way that God intended. It's almost like when Jesus says that if we abide in him as the vine, we can bear fruit. The fruit is our ability to rule creation. But the abiding is the communion that we have with our God. So the second difference we see between ancient Near Eastern treaties and the Mosaic Covenant is that it is not a mere legal contract. It's a relationship And in fact, if you were looking for a good definition of what a biblical covenant is, it is not merely a contract. It's not an agreement. It is a binding relationship. It is an oath-bound relationship between two parties. Um, a relationship made by oath, a relationship within within which two parties obligate themselves to one another. Uh, God, the creator of the cosmos, the one who says in our very text today that all of creation is his, chooses to enter into a binding relationship with humanity, which is also astounding. Um, How does God obligate himself to humanity? Well, we see this in some of the covenants that we read about in the scriptures. Um, First, uh, God makes a covenant to, with, and through Noah. We read about this covenant in Genesis chapter 9. And in Genesis chapter 9, um, God obligates Himself to preserve creation. Um, the land, the families they're in, the communities, God obligates himself to preserve creation, um, somehow bringing about human and creaturely fruitfulness, uh, sustaining that fruitfulness, ensuring that things persist. Uh, how does that happen? I don't know. God promises it, and somehow we're still here. <laughs> uh, we call this the Noic Covenant. Um, Abraham Kuyper, Dutch Reformed theologian, educator, and politician, calls it the covenant of common grace. Um, now, some have argued that God obligates himself to Abraham and Sarah uh, to not only bring about offspring, but to make this offspring into a nation and so, to, and so to bless then the entire world through them, to make them so blessed that they become a blessing to other people. And we call this the Abrahamic covenant. Eventually, God also obligates himself to the king of Israel, a guy named David, to establish his throne forever, to ensure that his kingdom continues without end. We read about this covenant in 2 Samuel chapter 7. We call this the Davidic covenant. Today, we're focusing on God's covenant through Moses. This is the covenant in which God rescues the offspring of Abraham and Sarah and gathers them unto himself in the wilderness and establishes a binding relationship with them. And eventually, eventually, all of this culminates in something called the new covenant, the new covenant in which God says to his people, um, I will give you a new heart. I will no longer write my law on tablets of stone. I will write my, I will write my, um, my laws on what? On your heart. And I will put a new spirit within you. Now, these last four covenants, every one of those except the Noah covenant, uh, all of them kind of work together. They're kind of related because all of them, all of them point to Christ. All of them are fulfilled in Christ. All of them are fulfilled by Christ. Now, they look different. They show up differently in the scriptures. We've got two testaments of scriptures in which they show up kind of differently. But all of them find their fulfillment in Christ. Today, as we focus on the Mosaic covenant, we do wisely present, see it in relationship to this new covenant. We see Christ as the fulfillment of even this covenant. So, the third difference, the third difference then between ancient Near Eastern treaties and the Mosaic Covenant is that God, um, God enters into a covenant, not with a king, but with all the people. Sorry, that was the first difference. The second difference, God rescues the people specifically for communion with himself. And then the third difference, the third difference we land on is with regard to the stipulations or the terms of the agreement. Remember, all these treaties have stipulations, um, things like don't conspire with other gods, give me all of the gossip on the, con- the conspiracies that you, that you um, hear about, um, send people to be a part of my military. Now, the Mosaic Covenant also has stipulations, and we find those principally in uh, Exodus chapter 20, verses 3 through 17, in what's known as the Ten Commandments, but also throughout the rest of the instructions of the Torah, uh, the first five books of the Bible, uh, any guesses as to how many laws there are in the Old Testament scriptures? Six hundred. Wow, look at you. <laughs> That's right. There's 613 laws in the Old Testament scriptures. That's a lot of laws. That's a lot of laws. And yet, how many of you have been facing a situation, and you've gone to the scriptures like you were taught to do, and... When you know it, you didn't find a law for that thing that you were that you were coming to the scriptures for. So then you went to Google because that's where you take things next. You don't find it in the scriptures, right? Like there's 613 laws in the Old Testament, and yet it's not a it's not it's not so expansive that it covers every single life situation. Not on its face, uh, there's more that has to happen for that to happen. If it covered every single, it would be super long. It would blow your Bible in a year reading plan. It would be a very very long text to read. Uh, so. Uh, Some people believe then that the laws are actually secondary um, to the covenant. They're secondary because what's primary is God's making of the covenant. What's primary is the relationship that we have with God. And the laws have a function to fulfill a particular end. Um, What is the end? Well, it says right in the text in verse 5 through 6, and you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Through Moses, God redeems the people, and he gathers them unto himself, and he calls them, God calls them his treasured possession, a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation, the people among whom his presence will dwell in a unique way a holy, set-apart nation amongst all the other nations that's governed differently than the other nations, and a royal priesthood. That is to say, mediators of God's presence, God's blessing, and God's goodness in the world. Isn't that incredible? Mediators of God's presence, God's blessing, and God's goodness in the world. And what do they have to do to fulfill this weighty, call. If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. Now, the word for obey in the scriptures is a Hebrew word that you've probably heard a million times before, shema. Repeat after me, shema. Shema means to listen or to hear. If you will listen to my voice, if you will hear my voice, it's actually interesting when you look at the Hebrew of this particular text, um, Shema is repeated twice, uh, so it's almost like God is saying, if you would listen, listen to my voice, if you would hear, hear my voice, um, God is a lot like my mom, like if you would just listen, listen to my voice, <laughs> probably your mom too. <laughs> now the second word in the text there is, uh, uh, God says, if you would keep my covenant, now we've covered this word before, to keep it is to Shemar. Repeat after me, shamar. Shemar is to, uh, to watch or to preserve or to protect, uh, to guard. Um, shemar is what Adam and Eve were supposed to do in the garden. They were supposed to watch and protect and preserve the garden or by extension creation. Uh, shemar is what Cain was supposed to do with his younger brother Abel. He was supposed to watch over him and protect him and preserve him. Shamar is what parents do with their children, what siblings do with their younger brothers and sisters, what teachers do with their students, uh, what significant others and spouses do with their relationship, which is probably a more fitting example. Uh, You guard it, you protect it, you preserve it, you watch over it. Um, God tells his people to listen, listen for his voice and to actively preserve his covenant, their binding relationship with him. And the law, these stipulations of the covenant, function as a guide to help us do just that. In fact, um, the Reformers picked up on this idea um, in their teachings about the law. Um, John Calvin, in particular, is one of my favorite thinkers. And John Calvin is a second generation reformer from the 16th century. Um, And he kind of um, plays on the thinking of other reformers. And he says, you know, there's three functions of the law. And I'm not going to go through the first or the second, but the third is specifically related to believers, he says. And the third function of the law, um, he says, is not that it plays a role in condemning us. Because remember, Paul said, we're free from the law. We're free from the condemnation of the law. We no longer live by the shame of not being able to keep the law. Nor are we saved through our obedience to the law, Calvin says, but rather for those who follow Christ, the law functions as a guide because it teaches us what pleases God so that we can participate in God's purposes for creation, for relationships, and for ourselves. Traditionally, this is referred to as Calvin's third use of the law, this idea that the law or the scriptures are instruction for us that help us to understand how it is that God wants us to participate in his purposes. And what are his purposes for us? That we would partner with him as a royal priesthood, as mediators of his goodness, his blessing, and his presence in the world. From this, then, Calvin transforms the Ten Commandments from a list of do-nots to a list also of do's, that there are certain things that the Ten Commandments even are calling us not to do, very clear things, and there's there's also some things that the Ten Commandments are asking of us, they're asking us to do. Uh, In that list of don'ts and do's, I think we hear not a dry set of commandments or laws or, or terms or stipulations, but the way that we might live as a royal priesthood. For instance, uh, the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. Don't make idols, God says. Uh, But then Calvin says, but do adore the God who stops at nothing to gather you unto himself. Place your affections in this God alone. Or commandment two, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or on the earth or in the water under the earth. Don't make images and statues of God, God says. But then Calvin also says, but you know, remember, you were made in the image of God. You were meant to rule creation, not to to idolize creation, and certainly not to make images of creation that you would then worship. Or for instance, commandment number three. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Watch the way you speak about God, Calvin says. Bad teaching poisons people. It destroys souls. Speak the truth about God with reverence and sobriety. Or commandment four, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Calvin says, you rule creation, but remember to stop regularly to worship, delight, and trust and rest in God. We stop working, Calvin says, so God can do his work in us. Or commandment five, honor your father and your mother Calvin takes this to mean honor anyone who has been placed above you because God has placed them there. St. Thomas Aquinas actually sticks a little bit closer to the text than Calvin on this one, and he says, Honor the people who gave you life. You are forever indebted to them. You will never be able to pay them back for what they gave to you, but you can try through your honor and your gratitude. Commandment six you shall not murder. Calvin says, Not only does this mean don't take the lives of other people, But, Calvin says, even when they've wronged you, remember that they're made in the image of God. Whether they're worthy doesn't matter. You are called to reflect on and attend to the image of God within them. In fact, not only should you refrain from killing them, but you should actively, actively preserve their life and work for their peace. Don't let your anger destroy you or others. Control it so that you don't break out in violence against other people. Or commandment number seven, you shall not commit adultery. Nothing good comes from lust. Do not commit adultery, God says. But then Calvin adds don't reduce human beings to sexual objects, not even when you're married to them. Don't reduce yourself through immodest attire and practices. And if everyone is made in the image of God, then remember that they all have a purpose in your life beyond mere sexual companionship. Honor yourself, honor others and honor the God whose image they bear. Or commandment number eight, you shall not steal. God says, don't take other people's things. Don't steal. But then Calvin reflects on humanity and their relationships to one another, and he says, you know what? Also, don't create business and legal loopholes that allow you to defraud people. Don't take other people's property, and in fact, protect the property and the possessions of others. Ensure that people are able to keep what belongs to them. Don't amass wealth at the expense of others. And be generous with all the things that God has entrusted to you. Meet the needs of other people. Commandment number nine, don't, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. The Command says don't lie about others and don't lie about yourself. Don't tell fictions that make yourself look better. Don't misrepresent other people's character. Refrain from slander. Don't rush to defame the reputations of others, even when you're mad at them, but preserve the reputations of others. Use your tongue to declare the truth, but also toward truthful ends, that is to serve the good reputation and the advantage of our neighbors. And lastly, commandment number 10, you shall not covet your neighbor's possessions and relationships. Calvin reminds us that God tells us not to idolize creaturely things. And then he reminds us that when we do, it comes back as a covetous, envious spirit. If you idolize creaturely things, you'll do anything to get them, including at the expense of your loved ones and your neighbors. Instead, Calvin says, love your neighbor and love your neighbor's good and love your neighbor's peace and let this rule of love govern your thoughts and your deeds toward your neighbor and all that belongs to him or her you imagine if we lived like that? Would we, I don't know, be something like a holy nation or a royal priesthood mediating God's presence, God's blessing, and God's goodness in the world around us? What happens when we take this seriously? Um, I'd like to thank, and this is where I'll, I'll close, um, That God's people have taken this seriously at various times, and it has kind of shifted the world around them. Um, God's people heard the revelation of God, um, the Jews in the ancient Near East, and they came up with an entirely different way of relating to one another. They insisted that somehow when God said we're made in the image of God and we're supposed to be conduits of God's blessing in the world, that that meant that they weren't supposed to rule and dominate one another. um, That it actually meant that they were supposed to Rule creation and be good stewards of creation. And their political system matched that um, in the beginning before they became just like all the other nations. But then some other folks have talked about um, the fact that in um, even the early church, the early church also came upon the scriptures and they took the scriptures seriously. They took the teachings of the scriptures very seriously and it changed culture. The reason why this text is not as astounding to us as it might have been maybe 2, 3, 4,000 years ago is because we have, inherited, we have inherited the borrowed capital from the Judeo-Christian tradition. We think it's normal that all people have dignity. We think it's normal that all people are created equal. But this is not how humanity chose to govern itself after it fell into sin. Uh, We see that in the ancient Near East. We also see that, um, some people would argue, Tom Holland, not that Tom Holland, the other Tom Holland, Uh, people would argue that that was the case even for the early church, that they looked at these these scriptures, they looked at the laws of the scriptures, they looked at these concepts like the image of God that is literally um, embedded on people's souls, Um, and they looked at the fact that Christ died for everyone, and they said that must mean something about the way that we are to show up in the world. That must mean something about who we are um, and what we bring to creation. Uh, So I'm not going to read a a, a ton of this because it's it's, one, it's a very big book. Uh, (laughs) But um, he Tom Holland says something that I find really interesting about these three siblings, um, Basil, uh, Gregory, and Macrina, uh, two brothers and a sister, uh, this really wealthy um, set of siblings who inherited the wealth of their families, um, could have done anything in the world, but they basically become Like some of the most memorable Christians from the fourth century, uh, specifically because of their dedication to the poor, their dedication to the abolition of slavery, um, their dedication to um, children that had been abandoned in the countryside, um, their dedication to putting names, the name of God on every single person that their society and that philosophy had taught them didn't matter. And they brought these ideas directly from the scriptures that they read. And so Tom Holland says this of them. He says, though they were compassionate, compassionate, having give up. Sorry, though Christ, the compassionate, had given um, these people his own person, um, Gregory um, and his, his siblings more clearly than anyone before them traced the implications of Christ's choice to live and die as one of the poor to its logical conclusion: that dignity, which no philosopher had ever taught, might be possessed by the stinking, toiling masses, was for all. There was no human existence so wretched, none so despised or vulnerable that it did not bear witness to the image of God. Divine love for the outcast and the derelict demanded that mortals, mere humans, love them too. This idea that all these ideas that we find embedded in our culture come from a place. They're not the ramblings or the musings of ordinary people sitting around at dinner parties wondering how they should order creation. They are directly revelation from our God. And faithful Christians over the last several thousand, couple thousand years, and faithful Jews up until that point too, lived these ideas in their lives. And it did something God did something with their faithfulness. And I think in our own time, God wants to continue doing something with our faithfulness. And he has. The church has done so many incredible things here in West Michigan with our faithfulness to the scriptures, to love God and love one another. And so the last thing I'll say is that when God says to listen to my voice and protect our relationship with him, he means just that that through listening to his voice in the scriptures, through protecting our covenant relationship, prioritizing our covenant relationship with him, that he is going to bear fruit through us. What is the fruit that God wants to bear through you this season? Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we are so immensely grateful that you you created us not to be slaves um, or serfs, Um, in a weird religious political system, you created us as partners with you and that you saw fit to bind yourself to us Um, as covenant partners that even when we fled from you, even when we sinned, even when we turned our backs on you, you stopped at nothing to bring us back into communion with yourself so that we could experience knowing you deeply and loving you deeply and be loved by you so that we could be good mediators of your presence and your blessing and your goodness in the world. Thank you for your goodness in all the ways that you have blessed us and help us to continue being a blessing here in our lives, in our relationships, in our families, and also in this community here that is known as West Michigan. In the name of Jesus Christ, we all pray. Amen.
0: Would you please stand in body and spirit and join us with singing?
3: Um, My name is Linda Milonowski, and I've had the pleasure and honor, um, humbled to serve as your president of the congregation for the last three or four months, and I just wanted to share a few observations for my first. I have two topics today. First one is just to share a few observations and some things that you might see coming along in the next few months. First of all, I had the honor and privilege to spend an evening and a Saturday with our consistory, And the primary purpose of that was to equip people to understand their roles as consistory leaders. Many of them are new. Also, even the ones that have been here for a couple years experienced a very unusual couple years with COVID, of course, and some of the training and those kind of things. We just needed to refresh and get us all kind of focused on the way forward. Second thing, of course, was to get to know one another and enjoy some fellowship together. I also want you to know that in the next Few months we'll be, we'll be establishing some ways that we can engage with the congregation in two way communications. And so be thinking about things that you really enjoy about fellowship that you'd like to continue and help us to prioritize how we can focus our priorities going forward to make it even better and where the Holy Spirit is leading you. In the meantime, we all had the opportunity to meet our parish leaders. Last week, that was a lot of fun to have lunch together and and to be in community again. We encourage you to reach out to your people. If you have any um, questions on who that may be, who your leader is, you can stop by the tables or always can reach out to me. I'd love to hear from you. The second topic is one that the pastors always cringe a little bit. But this month, October, is Pastor Appreciation Month. And we like, yes, Woo. <laughs> I'd like to kick that off with just a few words of my appreciation on behalf of the congregation. And then I'm going to encourage you to take this month and reach out with notes. Let's not assume that they know what we appreciate about them. We all need to hear it sometimes. But there are a few things, again, to try to express gratitude on behalf of Hundreds of people who worship and stay connected with fellowship on a weekly basis, the gifts that I have seen in working with them in these last few months that shine so clearly is a contagious joy as they share their love for God and others and how they just have such a deep desire for all of us to walk closely with Christ. Specifically, this would be a good time for you to come on up. Come on up. Nate, I'll come back oh, here. Right. Uh, <laughs> this will be short. I yes, kept please. it short and sweet. I know. I know it's hard. For I just see such a love, your love of people. He loves to be with people. He loves to spend time with people. Both people here, tending to our needs, as well as through the whole world of missions. Say, is that okay? Perfect. Okay. <laughs> Tiara, I've got you next. Uh, uh-huh. You're... <laughs> Tiara has just dug in here at Fellowship. She made her way around all the consistory members, and, I'm, and I know many more, to really just listen and try to get a feel of the Spirit and where the Holy Spirit is leading us as a congregation through our congregation members. And so, It's a really important theme in what I've seen you do in your time here. And secondly, just with this deep desire to provide us with resources that point us closer to a relationship with Christ. We heard it in the interview, and now I get to see her really live it out. Ross, teaching God's word from the book that we love. Don't you just love that phrase when he says that every week? I see a lot of nods. And your deepest desire is that this is not just a Sunday experience, but something that lives throughout our lives, throughout the week. And I'm just so grateful that all three of you Really share that desire that this is, yes, a wonderful spiritual worship experience to God on Sundays, but that we can take Him along with us throughout the week. So, a small token of our appreciation, I know, we have a gift box here from Cherry Republic for each one of them, and then a gift or gift certificate that's a little bit more personal to each of them. So, with that, please join me once again in sharing our appreciation.
0: Would you would you please stand? Please oh there we go. I was about to get out my mom voice. Ooh. Uh, would you please stand as we sing the doxology together?